Chapter 11, Part 2 of Pictures from Italy by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Our English dilettanti would be very pathetic on the subject of the national taste if they could hear an Italian opera half as badly sung in England as we may hear the Foscari performed tonight in the splendid theatre of San Carlo. But, for astonishing truth and spirit in seizing and embodying the real life about it, the shabby little San Carlino theatre, the rickety house one storey high, with a staring picture outside, down among the drums and trumpets and the tumblers and the lady conjurer, is without a rival anywhere. There is one extraordinary feature in the real life of Naples at which we may take a glance before we go, the lotteries. They prevail in most parts of Italy, but are particularly obvious in their effects and influences here. They are drawn every Saturday. They bring an immense revenue to the government, and diffuse a taste for gambling among the poorest of the poor, which is very comfortable to the coffers of the state, and very ruinous to themselves. The lowest stake is one grain, less than a farthing. One hundred numbers, from one to a hundred inclusive, are put into a box. Five are drawn, those are the prizes. I buy three numbers. If one of them come up, I win a small prize. If two, some hundreds of times my stake. If three, three thousand five hundred times my stake. I stake, or play as they call it, what I can upon my numbers, and buy what numbers I please. The amount I play... I pay at the lottery office where I purchase the ticket, and it is stated on the ticket itself. Every lottery office keeps a printed book, a universal lottery diviner, where every possible accident and circumstance is provided for, and has a number against it. For instance, let us take two Carlini, about sevenpence. On our way to the lottery office we run against a black man, when we get there, we say gravely, the diviner. It is handed over the counter as a serious matter of business. We look at black man, such a number, give us that. We look at running against a person in the street, give us that. We look at the name of the street itself, give us that. Now we have our three numbers. If the roof of the theatre of San Carlo were to fall in, so many people would play upon the numbers attached to such an accident in the diviner that the government would soon close those numbers and decline to run the risk of losing any more upon them. This often happens. Not long ago, when there was a fire in the king's palace, there was such a desperate run on fire and king and palace that further stakes on the numbers attached to these words in the golden book were forbidden. Every accident or event is supposed by the ignorant populace to be a revelation to the beholder or party concerned in connection with the lottery. Certain people who have a talent for dreaming fortunately are much sought after, and there are some priests who are constantly favoured with visions of the lucky numbers. I heard of a horse running away with a man and dashing him down dead at the corner of a street. Pursuing the horse with incredible speed was another man, who ran so fast that he came up immediately after the accident. He threw himself upon his knees beside the unfortunate rider, and clasped his hand with an expression of the wildest grief. "'If you have life,' he said, 
speak one word to me if you have one gasp of breath left mention your age for heaven's sake that i may play that number in the lottery it is four o'clock in the afternoon and we may go to see our lottery drawn the ceremony takes place every saturday in the tribunale or court of justice this singular earthy smelling room or gallery as mouldy as an old cellar and as damp as a dungeon at the upper end is a platform with a large horseshoe table upon it and a president and council sitting round all judges of the law the man on the little stool behind the president is the capo lazzarone a kind of tribune of the people appointed on their behalf to see that all is fairly conducted attended by a few personal friends a ragged swarthy fellow he is with long matted hair hanging down all over his face and covered from head to foot with most unquestionably genuine dirt all the body of the room is filled with the commonest of the neapolitan people and between them and the platform guarding the steps leading to the latter is a small body of soldiers there is some delay in the arrival of the necessary number of judges during which the box in which the numbers are being placed is a source of the deepest interest when the box is full the boy who is to draw the numbers out of it becomes the prominent feature of the proceedings he is already dressed for his part in a tight browned holland coat with only one the left sleeve to it which leaves his right arm bared to the shoulder ready for plunging down into the mysterious chest during the hush and whisper that pervade the room all eyes are turned on this young minister of fortune people begin to inquire his age with a view to the next lottery and the number of his brothers and sisters and the age of his father and mother and whether he has any moles or pimples upon him and where and how many when the arrival of the last judge but one a little old man universally dreaded as possessing the evil eye makes a slight diversion and would occasion a greater one but that he is immediately deposed as a source of interest by the officiating priest who advances gravely to his place followed by a very dirty little boy carrying his sacred vestments and a pot of holy water here is the last judge come at last and now he takes his place at the horseshoe table there is a murmur of irrepressible agitation in the midst of it the priest puts his head into the sacred vestments and pulls the same over his shoulders then he says a silent prayer and dipping a brush into the pot of holy water sprinkles it over the box and over the boy and gives them a double-barrelled blessing which the box and the boy are both hoisted on the table to receive the boy remaining on the table the box is now carried round the front of the platform by an attendant who holds it up and shakes it lustily all the time seeming to say like the conjurer there is no deception ladies and gentlemen keep your eyes upon me if you please at last the box is set before the boy and the boy first holding up his naked arm and open hand dives down into the hole it is made like a ballot box and pulls out a number which is rolled up round something hard like a bonbon this he hands to the judge next him who unrolls a little bit and hands it to the president next to whom he sits the president unrolls it very slowly the capo lazzaroni leans over his shoulder the president holds it up unrolled to the capo lazzaroni 
The capo Lazzaroni, looking at it eagerly, cries out in a shrill, loud voice, Sessantadue! Sixty-two, expressing the two upon his fingers as he calls it out. Alas, the Capolazzaroni himself was not staked on sixty-two. His face is very long, and his eyes roll wildly. As it happens to be a favourite number, however, it is pretty well received, which is not always the case. They are all drawn with the same ceremony, omitting the blessing. One blessing is enough for the whole multiplication table. The only new incident in the proceedings is the gradually deepening intensity of the change in the capo Lazzaroni, who has, evidently, speculated to the very utmost extent of his means, and who, when he sees the last number and finds that it is not one of his, clasps his hands and raises his eyes to the ceiling before proclaiming it, as though remonstrating in a secret agony with his patron saint for having committed so gross a breach of confidence. I hope the capo Lazzarone may not desert him for some other member of the calendar, but he seems to threaten it. Where the winners may be, nobody knows. They certainly are not present, the general disappointment filling one with pity for the poor people. They look, when we stand aside, observing them in their passage, through the courtyard down below, as miserable as the prisoners in the jail, it forms a part of the building, who are peeping down upon them from between their bars, or as the fragments of human heads which are still dangling in chains outside, in memory of the good old times, when their owners were strung up there, for the popular edification. Away from Naples in a glorious sunrise by the road to Capua, and then on a three days journey along by-roads that we may see on the way the monastery of Monte Cassino, which is perched on the steep and lofty hill above the little town of San Germano, and is lost on a misty morning in the clouds. So much the better for the deep sounding of its bell, which as we go winding up on mules towards the convent, is heard mysteriously in the still air, while nothing is seen but the grey mist, moving solemnly and slowly, like a funeral procession. Behold at length the shadowy pile of building close before us, its grey walls and towers dimly seen, though so near and so vast, and the raw vapour rolling through its cloisters heavily. There are two black shadows walking to and fro in the quadrangle, near the statues of the patron saint and his sister, and hopping on behind them, in and out of the old arches, is a raven, croaking in answer to the bell, and uttering at intervals the purest Tuscan. How like a Jesuit he looks! There never was a sly and stealthy fellow so at home as is this raven, standing now at the refectory door, with his head on one side, and pretending to glance another way, while he is scrutinising the visitors keenly, and listening with fixed attention. What a dull-headed monk the porter becomes in comparison! "'He speaks like us,' said the porter, "'quite as plainly.' "'Quite as plainly, porter.' Nothing could be more expressive than his reception of the peasants, who are entering the gate with baskets and burdens. There is a roll in his eye, and a chuckle in his throat, which should qualify him to be chosen superior of an order of ravens. He knows all about it. "'It's all right,' he says. "'We know what we know. Come along, good people. Glad to see you.' How was this extraordinary structure ever built in such a situation? 
where the labour of conveying the stone and iron and marble so great a height must have been prodigious Caw, says the raven welcoming the peasants how being despoiled by plunder fire and earthquake has it risen from its ruins and been again made what we now see it with its church so sumptuous and magnificent Caw, says the raven welcoming the peasants these people have a miserable appearance and as usual are densely ignorant and all beg while the monks are chaunting in the chapel Caw, says the raven cuckoo so we leave him chuckling and rolling his eye at the convent gate and wind slowly down again through the cloud at last emerging from it we come in sight of the village far below and the flat green country intersected by rivulets which is pleasant and fresh to see after the obscurity and haze of the convent no disrespect to the raven or the holy friars away we go again by muddy roads and through the most shattered and tattered of villages where there is not a whole window among all the houses or a whole garment among all the peasants or the least appearance of anything to eat in any of the wretched hucksters shops the women wear a bright red bodice laced before and behind a white skirt and the neapolitan headdress of square folds of linen primitively meant to carry loads on the men and children wear anything they can get the soldiers are as dirty and rapacious as the dogs the inns are such hobgoblin places that they are infinitely more attractive and amusing than the best hotels in paris here is one near valmontone that is valmontone the round-walled town on the mount opposite which is approached by a quagmire almost knee-deep there is a wild colonnade below and a dark yard full of empty stables and lofts and a great long kitchen with a great long bench and a great long form where a party of travellers with two priests among them are crowding round the fire while their supper is cooking above stairs is a rough brick gallery to sit in with very little windows with very small patches of knotty glass in them and all the doors that open from it a dozen or two off their hinges and a bare board on trestles for a table at which thirty people might dine easily and a fireplace large enough in itself for a breakfast parlour where as the faggots blaze and crackle they illuminate the ugliest and grimmest of faces drawn in charcoal and the whitewashed chimney sides by previous travellers there is a flaring country lamp on the table and hovering about it scratching her thick black hair continually a yellow dwarf of a woman who stands on tiptoe to arrange the hatchet knives and takes a flying leap to look into the water jug the beds in the adjoining rooms are of the liveliest kind there is not a solitary scrap of looking-glass in the house and the washing apparatus is identical with the cooking utensils but the yellow dwarf sets on the table a good flask of excellent wine holding a quart at least and produces among half a dozen other dishes two-thirds of a roasted kid smoking hot she is as good-humoured too as dirty which is saying a great deal so here's long life to her in the flask of wine and prosperity to the establishment rome gained and left behind and with it the pilgrims who are now repairing to their own homes again each with his scalloped shell and staff and soliciting arms for the love of god 
we come by a fair country to the falls of Terni, where the whole Valino river dashes headlong from a rocky height, amidst shining spray and rainbows. Perugia, strongly fortified by art and nature on a lofty eminence, rising abruptly from the plain, where purple mountains mingle with the distant sky, is glowing on its market-day with radiant colours. They set off its sombre but rich Gothic buildings admirably. The pavement of its market-place is strewn with country goods. All along the steep hill leading from the town, under the town wall, there is a noisy fair of calves, lambs, pigs, horses, mules and oxen. Fowls, geese and turkeys flutter vigorously among their very hooves, and buyers, sellers and spectators, clustering everywhere, block up the road as we come shouting down upon them. Suddenly there is a ringing sound among our horses. The driver stops them. Sinking in his saddle and casting up his eyes to heaven, he delivers this apostrophe. O oh, Jove, omnipotent, here is a horse has lost his shoe. Notwithstanding the tremendous nature of this accident, and the utterly forlorn look and gesture, impossible in any one but an Italian veterino, with which it is announced, it is not long in being repaired by a mortal farrier, by whose assistance we reached Castiglione the same night, and Arezzo next day. Mass is, of course, performing in its fine cathedral, where the sun shines in among the clustered pillars through rich stained-glass windows, half revealing, half concealing the kneeling figures on the pavement, and striking out paths of spotted light in the long aisles. But how much beauty of another kind is here, when on a fair clear morning we look from the summit of a hill on Florence. See where it lies before us in a sun-lighted valley, bright with the winding Arno, and shut in by swelling hills, its domes and towers and palaces rising from the rich country in a glittering heap and shining in the sun like gold. Magnificently stern and sombre are the streets of beautiful Florence, and the strong old piles of building make such heaps of shadow on the grounds and in the river, that there is another and a different city of rich forms and fancies always lying at our feet. Prodigious palaces constructed for defence, with small distrustful windows heavily barred, and walls of great thickness formed of huge masses of rough stone, frown in their old sulky state on every street in the midst of the city in the piazza of the grand duke adorned with beautiful statues and the fountain of neptune rises the palazzo vecchio with its enormous overhanging battlements and the great tower that watches over the whole town in its courtyard worthy of the castle of otranto in its ponderous gloom is a massive staircase that the heaviest wagon and the stoutest team of horses might be driven up within it is a great saloon faded and tarnished in its stately decorations and mouldering by grains but recording yet in pictures on its walls the triumphs of the medici and the wars of the old florentine people the prison is hard by in an adjacent courtyard of the building, a foul and dismal place where some men are shut up close in small cells like ovens, and where others look through bars and beg, where some are playing draughts and some are talking to their friends who smoke the while to purify the air, and some are buying wine and fruit of women vendors, and all are squalid, dirty and vile to look at. 
"'They're merry enough, signora,' says the jailer. "'They're all bloodstained here,' he adds, indicating with his hand three-fourths of the whole building. Before the hour is out, an old man, eighty years of age, quarrelling over a bargain with a young girl of seventeen, stabs her dead in the marketplace, full of bright flowers, and is brought in prisoner to swell the number. Among the four old bridges that span the river, the Ponte Vecchio, that bridge which is covered with the shops of jewellers and goldsmiths, is a most enchanting feature in the scene. The space of one house in the centre being left open, the view beyond is shown as in a frame, and that precious glimpse of sky and water and rich buildings, shining so quietly among the huddled roofs and gables on the bridge, is exquisite. Above it the gallery of the Grand Duke crosses the river. It was built to connect the two great palaces by a secret passage, and it takes its jealous course amongst the streets and houses with true despotism, going where it lists and spurning every obstacle away before it. The Grand Duke has a worthier secret passage through the streets, in his black robe and hood, as a member of the Compagnia della Misericordia, which brotherhood includes all ranks of men. If an accident takes place, their office is to raise the sufferer and bear him tenderly to the hospital. If a fire break out, it is one of their functions to repair to the spot and render their assistance and protection. It is also among their commonest offices to attend and console the sick, and they neither receive money nor eat nor drink in any house they visit for this purpose. Those who are on duty for the time are all called together on a moment's notice by the tolling of the great bell of the tower, and it is said that the Grand Duke has been seen at this sound to rise from his seat at table and quietly withdraw to attend the summons. In this other large piazza, where an irregular kind of market is held, and stores of old iron and other small merchandise are set out on stalls or scattered on the pavement, are grouped together the cathedral with its great dome, the beautiful Italian Gothic tower, the Campanile, and the baptistry with its wrought bronze doors. And here, a small untrodden square in the pavement, is the Stone of Dante, where, so runs the story, he was used to bring his stool and sit in contemplation. I wonder was he ever in his bitter exile withheld from cursing the very stones in the streets of Florence the Ungrateful, by any kind remembrance of this old musing-place, and its association with gentle thoughts of little Beatrice. The chapel of the Medici, the good and bad angels of Florence, the church of Santa Croce, where Michelangelo lies buried, and where every stone in the cloisters is eloquent on great men's deaths. Innumerable churches, often masses of unfinished heavy brickwork externally, but solemn and serene within, arrest our lingering steps in strolling through the city. In keeping with the tombs among the cloisters is the Museum of Natural History, famous through the world for its preparations in wax, beginning with models of leaves, seeds, plants, inferior animals, and gradually ascending through separate organs of the human frame up to the whole structure of that wonderful creation exquisitely presented as in recent death. Few admonitions of our frail mortality can be more solemn and more sad, or strike so home upon the heart, as the counterfeits of youth and beauty that are lying there upon their beds, 
in their last sleep. Beyond the walls, the whole sweet valley of the Arno, the convent at Fiesole, the Tower of Galileo, Boccaccio's house, old villas and retreats, innumerable spots of interest, all glowing in a landscape of surpassing beauty, steeped in the richest light, are spread before us. Returning from so much brightness, how solemn and how grand the streets again, with their great dark mournful palaces and many legends, not of siege and war and might and iron hand alone, but of the triumphant growth of peaceful arts and sciences. What light is shed upon the world at this day from amidst these rugged palaces of Florence? Here, open to all comers in their beautiful and calm retreats, the ancient sculptors are immortal, side by side with Michelangelo, Canova, Titian, Rembrandt, Raphael, poets, historians, philosophers, those illustrious men of history, besides whom its crowned heads and harnessed warriors show so poor and small, and are so soon forgotten. Here the imperishable part of noble minds survives, placid and equal, when strongholds of assault and defence are overthrown, when the tyranny of the many, or the few, or both, is but a tale, when pride and power are so much cloistered dust. The fire within the stern streets, and among the massive palaces and towers, kindled by rays from heaven, is still burning brightly, when the flickering of war is extinguished, and the household fires of generations have decayed, as thousands upon thousands of faces, rigid with the strife and passion of the hour, have faded out of the old squares and public haunts, while the nameless Florentine lady, preserved from oblivion by a painter's hand, yet lives on in enduring grace and youth. Let us look back on Florence while we may, and when its shining dome is seen no more, go travelling through cheerful Tuscany with a bright remembrance of it, for Italy will be the fairer for the recollection. The summer time being come, and Genoa and Milan and the Lake of Como lying far behind us, and we are resting at Fido, a Swiss village, near the awful rocks and mountains, the everlasting snows and roaring cataracts of the great St. Gotthard, hearing the Italian tongue for the last time on this journey. Let us part from Italy with all its miseries and wrongs affectionately, in our admiration of the beauties, natural and artificial, of which it is full to overflowing, and in our tenderness towards a people naturally well disposed and patient and sweet-tempered. Years of neglect, oppression and misrule have been at work to change their nature and reduce their spirit, Miserable jealousies fomented by petty princes to whom union was destruction and division strength have been a canker at their root of nationality and have barbarised their language. But the good that was in them ever is in them yet and a noble people may be one day raised up from these ashes. Let us entertain that hope and let us not remember Italy the less regardfully because in every fragment of her fallen temples and every stone of her deserted palaces and prisons she helps to inculcate the lesson that the wheel of time is rolling for an end and that the world is in all great essentials better gentler more forbearing and more hopeful as it rolls 
End of chapter 11. Recording by Anthony Ogus. End of Pictures from Italy by Charles Dickens.